Well, good morning. <laughs> that bumper always throws me. I don't know what all that means in the first part, but whenever it says Matthew, then I come up. I'm just like, that's, there's my cue. Okay, good. Glad you're here. My name's Steve. I'm one of the guys on staff here, and we're thrilled to have you here on this Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is a very special day for me um, in that it's the day that I was introduced into this whole concept of Christianity in the church. Um, it started this way. It's a really strange story, but let me share it with you. My mom, who raised, she was a single mom, raised five kids all by herself, no help from any agencies, zero help from my dad. She did the very best she could, but it was pretty tough going. And she felt like we ought to get church somehow, but she couldn't go, she thought. So here's what she did. On beginning when I was about nine or 10 years old, and the two youngest siblings were too small, but she would drop off every Palm Sunday, she would drop me off in charge to take care of my, I'm, if I'm nine, my brother below me is seven, and then my sister's five. And she would drop us off at the front door of a church, an Episcopal church, had to be Episcopal church. And um, she would drop us off there, and we would go to the service and sit through a Palm Sunday service. And then it, when we came out, she said, I'll be back in an hour. She would pick us up. I know y'all are thinking, what kind of mom does this? It gets worse, okay? So um, <laughs> she would drop us off, and she would say, show me the palms. And we would have to hold up our palm because at the Episcopal Church, they, they, they give everybody a palm if you go. And so that we would show the palms, which proved that we didn't sneak off to the playground or something. And we sat through the whole service because they, the, they gave them out at the end of the service. Then when my siblings got a little bit older, like I'm 12 now, and then it, now it's a 12-year-old in charge of a 12, 10, 8, 4, 2. That's how old we are. Five of us kids would all walk in holding our littlest siblings' hands. We would take up, can you imagine this? And we'd take up a row, unsupervised. We'd try not to giggle. And we would sit through this incredibly foreign experience that we could not make any sense of. People were standing and kneeling and sitting and saying something back without a prompt and no screen. They would respond back to the guy who was talking. And then in the middle of the service, they would get up and they would have communion. I didn't know what that was, what it was, but it was communion. But you, only certain people could take communion. But we thought everybody else is going up, we'll go up. When we got up there, the, the dude just blessed us and then pushed us along. And like, what are y'all doing here? Who... And then my mom would pick us up and she would not say, how was the service? How was the sermon? How was church? No. What would she say? Show me your palms. Show me the palms. And then when I finally got a little bit older and I started to drive us to church on Palm Sunday only, the only, only day we ever went to church, I'm 15 and now I'm going in with a 15, 13, 11, 7, 5, and now since I can drive, I drive us to a Baptist church because I know some of the kids in the Baptist church. I don't go there, um, but I, and I would, didn't want to go there, but I knew some kids went there from school, so I would take them to the Baptist church. And in the Baptist church, we were, we were goofed up. We were, it was un, we were undone because they were too cheap to give everybody a palm. So we would go home, and she'd say, show me the palm. And we'd be like, well, now they didn't give us a palm. And she said, did you really go? And we would say, yes, we really did. That was my introduction to church. And I never really, and, and, and somewhere around 15 or 16, I refused to start to take my siblings, and I didn't go again until I was 23 years old. 
And I married this beautiful woman who said, on Sundays we go to church. And I said, yes, ma'am. So I don't know why you're here. I don't know. Maybe somebody dropped you off. But I'd like to take you through the Palm Sunday experience in Matthew chapter 21. It's a difficult transition because we're going to go to the last crowds of Jesus' life and see the crowds, but then look at these giant crowds that go along with Jesus and say, why were so many people following him? And then go back to Matthew 4, which is the passage I'm supposed to preach, because that's what Jay gave me to preach, right? He said, you, get, you got to Matthew 4. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that, so I don't want to make him mad, but we're going to do both. So you got to transition with me from 21 to 4 and work back and forth. Deal? Deal. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to gather, and I thank you for this Palm Sunday because it ushers in the Holy Week, which is a week, God, where your son, knowing full well what awaited him, set his course towards Jerusalem and would not turn an inch away. So help us to get insight into what was going on that we might understand your heart more for us and Jesus' sacrifice more fully. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said, and as soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone asks you, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs them. What a plan. And he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on the donkey's colt. The two disciples did just as Jesus commanded, and they brought the donkey and the colt to him, threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. And most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. And others cut branches on the, from the trees and spread them on the road. And I can imagine Jesus sitting on this colt, this foal of a donkey, and his feet probably almost touched the ground. Don't think horse. Don't think tall. This is a short little donkey. And his feet are almost touching the ground. And as people see him coming in, they began to declare these praises out loud, and they grab palm branches and throw them down. And we think, what a beautiful church service this was. And we miss it. Because what is going on is actually a very subversive, counter-cultural moment. So you've got to understand something about the people of Israel. They have been in exile for a long time. The northern kingdom of Israel fell in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom of Judah fell in 586 B.C. And from that time, except for a very small window, they have been under the thumb of a government. So by the time Christ comes in on that Palm Sunday, for over 750 years, part of the people of God have been under the control of another government. 
And I just did some work on who those things were, beginning with Alexander the Great and the Macedonians, Macedonians, then the Babylonians, the Syrians, and then the Assyrians, and then the Greeks, and now the Romans. They have been under these very oppressive, very powerful governments, and they have not run their own lives. And so when that, what they are doing here is actually more of a statement against the people over them than it is for Jesus. It is this rebellious act. Now, how did they get this idea? Well, I told you there was a very small window when they actually governed themselves. It was called the, the Maccabean Revolt. And this guy named Judas Maccabeus, um, he, he led this revolt. And for a very short time, he, Rome, they were able to break free from all of the oppression of the other government. And they were free. And while he was in power, he came into Jerusalem on a horse as a conquering general, and they laid down palm branches for him. And it was so symbolic of an act that he, for the only time during that whole 750 plus years for some of the people, the only time they only meant, they minted their own coins, Maccabeus minted his own coins. And what do you think he put on them? An image of himself? He put a palm branch because it's a symbol of breaking free from the tyranny of these governments over them. And so what they're, what's happening is, so you see, these religious pilgrims who have made their way to Jerusalem for the Passover um, festivals, they would come in the week early and the population would go up many times, ten, some think more than 10 times normal population. There's no place to stay. There's no place to even pitch a tent. You couldn't, you, there's, it's just jammed with people and they're all coming to this, this city to, to participate in the Passover festival and they've been hearing talk. Perhaps they've even heard Jesus teach and they've seen and heard reports of this miracle and they're saying perhaps, perhaps he's the guy. Perhaps this could be it. We, we don't care what he's going to stand for. He's got to be better than Rome. And so you've got, they don't have any real power. Perhaps this miracle worker that we've heard about can do something to set us free. And so they begin this chant. Verse 9. Jesus was in the center of the procession and all the people around him were shouting, Praise God for the son of David, which is a very messianic term. It is, it's the son of David is a term that's reserved for the Messiah. And they, the religious leaders, understand that. Even though the people that are shouting this may not get the full implications of it, the religious leaders understand what's going on. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God or Hoshana in the highest heaven. And the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they ask? And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. He's been elevated from rabbi to prophet and the, the disciples must be going slap crazy. They just must be going crazy. This is why we joined him. Finally, the people are recognizing him. The people are shouting praises to him. They're identifying him as the Messiah. He's going to have to do some kind of miracle, but we're not sure what it is, but he's going to finally set Israel and the people of God free from the rule of Rome. So Jesus immediately does what every PR representative 
public relations representative would have endorsed him to do, he ticks off all the most powerful people right away. Verse 12, he entered into the temple courts, drove out all who were buying and selling there, overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. What's going on is there's a system involved that really robs money from, the, uh, the Jews are robbing from their own people. All of these thousands and thousands of people, maybe even over 100,000 people come into Jerusalem and they've come for the Passover festivals. But you can't bring your own animals as perfect as they may be because by the time you travel hundreds of miles, that animal now has blemish. And so you have to buy the animals from the people in the temple who charge exuberant prices for those animals. But not only that, you come and you can only buy the animals with temple money, temple coins. So you have to go to a table and exchange your local money, even Roman currency, to, into temple money because the temple won't take the Roman currency. And so they charge you to, to switch it over. Then you go and buy this punk animal that you got to pay way too much money for that you really shouldn't have to pay. And so they're just making money against these people everywhere. And Jesus walks in and we'll have none of it. And he offends all of the religious leaders and the money behind the religious leaders, turning the tables over and upsetting the whole process. Well, the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did in the the Children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. And they were indignant. Now, our experience with Hosanna is usually it's in some kind of a praise song that we've got like Brooke Liggertwood, Hosanna, Hosanna. I'll stop here. But Hosanna is not really a religious word. It's really much more, in Jesus' day, a political word. It's a combination word, hosha, which means help us, uh, deliver us, save us. And na, which means now, please. Like, let's get her done now. And so that, what would have been happening as Jesus entered in is there would have been this giant crowds of people and they would have been this chant, ho sha na ho sha na ho sha na help us now, help us now. You see, it's not like, praise you, Jesus. It's kick some butt. Deliver us now, ho sha na. And now we begin to get a feel for what the crowd is really wanting. They've got no idea who this Jesus is, really. But if there's a chance, just an outside chance, that he can defeat Rome and deliver them, they will wave the palm branches. The religious leaders say, Do you hear what these people are saying? Yes, replied Jesus, 
Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Now, Jesus just did something, and we're, we don't get it. Because this you got to do a little extra work to kind of get this. It sounds like he said, yeah, that's what God said, man. When the Messiah shows up, the children, everybody's going to praise him, and you can't shut him up. But what he did was he quoted Psalm 8, and he did something that's really quite brilliant. There's three different ways to teach. We have these ways, but in the Jewish Hebrew culture, they would have said there's a Peshat. What I'm trying to do now is a Peshat. I'm trying to be as clear as I can about what I'm trying to get you to learn. I state it clearly. Now you may go, you may be thinking, <laughs> you ain't doing it. But I'm trying. It's a Peshat. But the next one is Remez. Remez is I refer to something you know, and because you know it, you get the hidden meaning. Let me, let me try to see if I can. Now, this is going to date me, so some of you younger folks, you're going to be like, what? I'm, but that's okay. Most of the time, that's what I'm saying. What if I were to say to you, you can check out any time you want, and you would say to me, but you can never leave. Hotel California, the Eagles. And if I'm trying to teach you, you're stuck. You're stuck. I could say to you, you can check out anytime you want, and I just leave it at that. But there's more meaning to it. It's a remez. Now, some of y'all are going, wow, I don't, I, don't, I don't get that at all. Well, the first thing I would say is, just as a, as a statement of love from you as your pastor, one of your pastors, you need to listen to the eagles a little more often. Okay? You just it's going to bring godliness into your life. No, I'm just playing. I might say something like this will this will this will be even tougher. There's a lady who's sure that all that glitters is gold. And she's buying her a stairway to heaven. Okay, I know. See, there was nothing out of here from you young people. You were like, beats the bleep out of me. I got no clue. But it, that is a remez. That's what Jesus does here. Haven't you read that out of the mouths of children and infants will come praise? He doesn't quote the rest of, rest of it. What does the rest of Psalm 8 say, that verse? Here's what it is. Psalm 8, verse 2. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. What did he just say? You people think you're on God's side and you're working against him and God is going to shut you down. You see what it was? You're, you're like... It wasn't just a pleasant exchange between Jesus and some guys. He basically said, you're missing the whole thing. You're missing the whole thing so much so that God is moving like this and you are going the opposite direction. It's a remez. And as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, it says that he approached in a way that's really kind of different than, he, he even comes in from the wrong side of the city. He comes in from the east side of the city. That's not where kings and dignitaries come in. Kings and dignitaries come in from the west side of the city. 
There's a long-standing Jewish tradition that when the Messiah returns, he will come from the east side and he will enter through the east gate. And when Muslims conquered Jerusalem um, and decided what the first thing that they did was they bricked shut the east gate. Like that's going to stop the Messiah, right? I mean, so if you enter now from the east gate, the east side, if you were to go there today, you would enter through my gate. Stephen's gate. It's not really mine. He approaches on a donkey, not a horse. He comes to defeat sin, not Rome. The religious leaders are getting it all wrong. The crowds are getting it all wrong. He came to please his father, not to please the crowds. He's talking about a kingdom that is now, but not yet. He's come not as the Lion of Judah, but as the Lamb of God. And almost everybody misses it. In Luke 19, as this is going on, it's describing the triumphal entry, which, by the way, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry is in all four of the Gospels. That's how important it is. And in Luke 19, it says that as he approached Jerusalem, he saw it and then he wept over it. We only have two occasions in the Gospels where it says Jesus wept. First was at the funeral of Lazarus, your favorite verse. And mine too. And then this one here in John 19, uh, Luke 19. Psalm 118, 25 and 26 says, Lord, save us. Guess what that word is? Hosha. Lord, save us. Grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He sees the arrogance of the city, the lostness of the crowds and confusion, the betrayal of his friends. He sees all of that. Most importantly, though, he sees the cross. He walks in on Palm Sunday and stays there all week, knowing full well what, what's approaching on Friday, knowing the full brunt of the crucifixion. Man, if you want to know, what brought me to Christianity, what brought me to Christianity was the resurrection of Christ. What keeps me in Christianity is Palm Sunday. It's one thing that he would die, but that he would plan to do it for me. There's a thousand, hundred thousand opportunities for him to escape. And instead he stays right there, weeping, over the city. Different reactions to Jesus in this. There's the crowds that are confused and don't really know what's going on. Religious leaders who are mad and afraid. There's disciples who are just thrilled. They think everything's finally starting to go the way they want. And then there's Jesus who out of love determines that I will humble myself. I will do the Father's will. Unless he removes this cup from me, I will stay here. When you think about Palm Sunday, when you think about the coming week as we work towards Easter, what group are you in? Is it a time in your life where you're kind of confused about the workings of God? You, maybe you've got questions about him or you've got questions about how he's doing things. This is not how you thought life would unfold. Maybe you're angry with him about how some things have happened. 
that's a legitimate response according to the scriptures. There are times when people who love God very much get angry at what happens. Maybe you're at a time where, you know what, I can't wait for this week. You're full of joy like the disciples. And then what group are you in? It's amazing to me that when John 12 talks about the, this time around Palm Sunday, it says, John 12, verse 37, but despite all the miraculous signs that Jesus had done, most of the people still did not believe in him. Most of the people. In fact, when Lazarus was raised just before the triumphal entry, when Lazarus was raised, some people watch it and praise God and come to faith. Other people run to the religious leaders and tattle. What group are you in? Now, we see these large crowds. I mean, they are gigantic crowds. The crowds around Jesus become so large that by the time you get to Matthew 5, we're in, now we're in Matthew 4, by the time you get into Matthew 5, you realize Jesus can no longer teach indoors. There's rarely opportunities for him to teach indoors. And when he does teach indoors, the crowd are so big that they rip through the roof to get to him. Now, but how did all that start? How did the crowds begin to form? Now, let me back you up to Matthew chapter 4, where we see the very first crowds. Matthew chapter 4, beginning verse 23. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee. That's a little bit unique for a rabbi. Teaching in the synagogues, that is not unique. What would happen when rabbis did travel, they would be invited to the visiting synagogue of the, of the village. They would be invited to come in and they would hand them a scroll. They would roll open the scroll of the day. They would read the scroll to the people because most of the people could not read it. They would read the scroll and then they would give comment about what they had read. And that's what Jesus is doing. And that's what he does throughout his ministry as he travels about and he keeps teaching in synagogues. When the synagogues are too small, then he teaches out on the hillsides and teaches from boats on a, on a, on a shoreline. He does all of those kinds of things. And this is part of Jesus' strategy. And he, this is part of where Christians kind of get it wrong today. He does what he knows to do. We've talked about this before. And then he's not weird about it. Christians get just, they can just be so weird. The strategies are just so weird sometimes. And I don't mean to speak against anybody out there trying to do what they want to do and, and doing what they feel like God wants them to do. God bless them. But you got to admit, holding a sign up about how God hates what you do and telling them God loves them is a strange strategy. Can we agree? Now, if, you want, if you're called to hold signs up for hate, two things for you. God bless you. You better obey and maybe attend somewhere else. Because that's, that's just weird. It's weird. Jesus isn't weird. He, just, he does what normal culture would kind of, but then he speaks into it. And what's strange and, and not really weird is just how much God teaches through him about his love for us. So he's teaching. 
and announcing. The word for announcing is translated preaching just as often as announcing. So he's teaching and announcing, heralding this good news about the kingdom. Now, if you've been coming pretty regular or watching online pretty regular, you're like, yep, that's what he teaches. What does Jesus preach? Good news about what? The kingdom. That's what we got earlier in chapter 4. That's what we'll get later in chapter 9. That's what Peter preaches. That when he sends the 12 out two by two, that's what they preach. When he sends out more bigger groups, that's what they preach. That's what Peter preaches when the church starts. That's what Paul preaches when he preaches. Good news about the kingdom. You get it? So he's doing exactly what is the plan talking about this wonderful good news, announcing to people that the kingdom of God is available because the Messiah has come. He teaches, he preaches, and then watch all of the inclusion in this language. And then he healed every kind of disease. It's a general term for sickness. This term for disease is just a general term for sickness, whatever the sickness might have been. And illness, this word for illness literally means weakness. So generally, if you're sick, generally, if you're weak, you got something where you're not really feeling that great, he, he's healing all of those kinds of things. Now, here's an amazing little thing. Verse 23 is exactly repeated in chapter 9, verse 35. And the Bible almost never does that. So there's that some kind of a, a literary marker for us about what's going on in the book of Matthew. And what's happening is he says he's teaching, preaching, and healing. And then in, in we've gotten 4.23, this thing about how he does it, in 9.35. And then between them, chapters 5, 6, and 7 are Jesus' teaching. If you want to know what Jesus taught over and over, wherever he went, he teaches the Sermon on the Mount and portions of it. That's what he teaches. And then, after that, there are 10 miracles in a row. From the end of chapter 7 to 9.35, 10 miracles. Teaching, preaching, healing. And he's laying out for us just what he's trying to do. News about him spread as far as Syria. Syria, that word's only used here in Matthew and it's a Roman term. I'll show you that in a minute. And people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. This word for sick is different than illnesses above. Literally, this word means to have it bad. So the terms are purposefully broad. Do you hear what he's, what's going on? Everyone, all who had illness or weakness or had it bad. Whatever that means. And whatever illness there, their sickness or disease, sickness actually here is the same one as in verse 23, but disease is a word that means torment or torture. Or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic. This word for epilep epilepsy here is only used in Matthew twice, and it literally means lunatic. It's, it's, they just, it's like they've lost their mind. We don't know. Or if they were paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. 
the people from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, all over Judea, and from east of the Jordan River. Now, what I want to tell you is, is that what Matthew is doing here when he lays this out is he's trying to be as inclusive as he could be. I tried to put in orange there as the verses float out. There's over 10 or 11 times where it's all inclusive. The illness or throughout or everyone or everybody or whoever. It's all, at, he doesn't turn anybody away. Teaching, preaching, healing. This is what he does. And this is what he does from Matthew 4 all the way. Can you imagine by the time you get to Matthew 21, no wonder the crowds are huge. They got no understanding of medicine at this time. Imagine you've got a loved one who has, who has a, a limb that grew back crooked or a cough that just won't go away or a fever that just won't leave them or something mentally that's going on. You would travel, I'm sure, you would travel at whatever expense it took to get an audience with this guy. And now you see why there's so much desperation sometimes, why they would crawl their way through a roof or why they would push people aside or fight to do whatever they could or go against culture and scream out, Son of David, Son of David! Because you would do anything you could just to get some relief for your loved one or maybe for yourself. And this verse says that beginning in chapter 4, this is his practice from for everyone who comes into contact with him. That's why it's not an overstatement for Jesus to say in the Gospels, it says on several different occasions, he was completely exhausted because he didn't even have time to eat. If you've watched the series, The Chosen, there's one particular um, part in it. And by the way, I completely recommend it it's it's tremendous um in one there's one one uh episode where they're saying and, and you just see the people lined up as far as you can see they're lined up just to see jesus and to get some kind of healing teaching preaching healing to see how inclusive this is let me show you a map so that you can understand what the Decapolis or the Ten Towns. Decapolis means the Ten Towns. It's completely Roman. If you were Roman, you would stay in Caesarea on the coast or you would move to Decapolis. You would not want to move inside of some of the things that are going on there. Most of the Romans would not be part. They just didn't want to be, they looked down prejudicially on the Jewish people. So Romans would have stayed on the coast Jaffa, Caesarea, or they would have moved to Decapolis. And today, the ruins that are in Decapolis are all Roman. And, and Jesus sit, traveled throughout all of these regions without prejudice and healed all who came along. Yes, even Samaria. And if you wanted to think about the Roman um, Empire, this is Syria. This map shows Syria and then the extension eventually Syria went up into Turkey. So Syria was referenced to, listen to these countries, present day countries of Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Arabia, Iran, Iraq. Try to get those countries together today. And Jesus healed all. All of those folks, anybody that would come. The nature of of Jesus' ministry was inclusive. 
now you see no wonder when you get to ch chapter 21, the crowds are gigantic. Because he goes about teaching and preaching and healing. Seems remiss as we put the service together, it seems remiss to leave without spending some time on healing and at least asking for it. Now I know some of you, your experience might be strange and we've already promised that what we try to do here is try not to be too weird. But I'm asking you to trust me as we decide that we'll just pray for some healing now. And um, you don't have to do a single thing. If I, as I ask people to do something, you don't have to do a single thing. But I'm going to ask you to kind of respond in a way that shows your request. And now if you're in the tent or if you're online, if, when I ask people to stand, if that fits you, then you stand where you are if you're able. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray for, through a couple of areas, like prayer for physical and emotional healing, prayer for relational healing, and prayer for vocational healing. And vocational healing is like your job is, there's, there could be brokenness there in terms of how it works. It could be um, your, what's going on in terms of how your boss is leading the organization. Maybe we need to pray your boss out. Um, <laughs> hey, I've prayed people out of this church, I'll tell you that. I, and if you're here, you ain't them. So, uh, so we'll, just, we'll just do that. And um, again, if you feel comfortable responding, I'd just, I would just like to pray for these things. As we've modeled that Jesus is open to be, if we include him in on this, scriptures say you have not because you ask not. Well, let's ask. Let's ask. So let me ask first in this first area of, of physical healing. Either you or someone you know needs healing. So I'm going to just ask you to stand up. Just stand up where you can or raise your hand for, because you can't stand and that's great. And, and it might be you. It could be someone you know that you'd really like to see God do a breakthrough in, in this situation. All right. And then as I pray, I'd like for you to whisper the name of the person you had in mind when you stood. Okay, let's pray together. Father, you know what's represented by people shifting the weight out of the seat and onto their feet. That, that little act is this act of opening up to you and saying, God, Hoshana, help us now. And so you know who we're thinking of. You know what, who needs a healing hand. We ask in the name of Jesus and on His authority that you would bring healing properties and power into every one of these situations. We don't know how that works and we don't know what you're going to do. And we know just because we ask doesn't mean you got to do anything. But we're asking you as your children collectively together, we raise one voice to your throne and say, please, on behalf of the people that we've whispered, on the behalf of the people that we love, and even on behalf of ourselves and our own health, would you please Help us now, please bring healing, bring relief, please in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you can have a seat. This next area really has to do with relationships. There's maybe something in your family, something at work, um, something that's going on and there's a relationship that's broken and you really can't fix it, which is, if you've recognized that, that's a great step forward because other people are involved. It could be just some emotional stuff that's going on between. So I'm going to ask if that's an area that you'd like prayer, then you can stand up, please. 
And then as I pray, again, I, I would ask you first to, to take a posture of humility and then to whisper the name of the person you'd like to see a relationship restored to, okay? Here we go. Father, we recognize that we're broken and that means our relationships sometimes get broken. And so we, we ask, please, that you would help us that you would bring healing, that you would, you would show us the correct words or the correct strategy or the correct timing that we might be um, agents of restoration in this relationship. That harmony would be restored. That kindness and love would be the mark of how we speak to each other. God, in some instances, there's, there's people that are heading a, a direction that's just so broken that the, it breaks the relationship too. Would you, would you turn them back towards you? That our relationships could be honoring for one another and for you. Help us, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you can have a seat. And then one other area that I think is a big area is vocational ones where we need to, something's going on in your job. You need a different job. You need a promotion. You need a demotion. You need less hours. You need more hours. Whatever it might be that's going on for work so that you can either provide or that you can enjoy what you're doing. There's more of a harmony between who you are and what you want. It might be you don't have a job at all and you're just looking for a job. Then would you please stand now and let me pray for you in a vocation in that whole arena. Awesome. Now, as I pray, I, I would encourage you just to whisper to God what you want, what you'd like to see happen. God, again, just, this, just the transfer of weight to our feet is a, an act of dependence. And especially in the areas of jobs, there's so many personalities involved and so many different variables and, and things that are, also the finances, there's just so much, God. We confess to you that most of the time we think we can control stuff, but we recognize right now, right now, God, we see that we cannot, unless you help us, we are undone. Hoshana, help us now, please, that we might, we might live in a way where we, our employment, our faith, our joy, our our interests are aligned in a way that, that brings us joy, makes us more effective at what we do, and doesn't just make money for somebody or some corporation, but God, it's where we bring good, where we bring good and reconciliation into the world and the workplace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Palm Sunday, thank you for letting me go where I went. I know it was a difficult transition to jump from Matthew 21 to back to his, at his end of his ministry to back to the first. It allowed me to honor my mom and also honor Jay's request. And it's my prayer that, that what we've asked for, God, we'll see God do something. And so if you... If you stood for prayer during the service, um, either during the songs or after the service, um, you can come up and grab one of these 
and let it just kind of be a reminder that you're saying, God, help us now. Please help us. And just grab one of these. We're kind of in between the Episcopals and the Baptists. Um, we've, we bought some palms, but we don't have enough for everybody. So everybody who stood gets one, um, but at least we got some. So uh, you can grab them then. Father, as we sing out the truth of who you are, may we be just so reminded of the great act of love by Jesus who goes to Jerusalem, sets his will towards Jerusalem on our behalf, not to please anybody but you and not to serve any of the religious leaders of his day, but to serve mankind, to do away with the penalty of sin and death. God, what a gift. What a great gift. We thank you. We give you praise and glory for this holy week. In Jesus' name, amen.